Hello and welcome to this Monday edition of Back to the Bible. We are into the third week of our four-week series called The True Christian, a study in the book of Colossians. Today we are in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through to 15, as Bible teacher John Newfeld shares a message titled, Made Alive. Second Kings chapter 5 tells the story of a Syrian commander. This man is directly under the king of Syria. He's a sworn enemy of Israel. He is, however, not just a commander. He's also a man with considerable health problems. He's leprosy. His name's Naaman. In his house, Naaman has a slave girl. The girl's an Israelite, a girl captured in one of the Syrian raids into her country. And she informs Naaman, her master, through her mistress, that there's a prophet in Israel who can heal the commander, and his name is Elisha. And so Naaman tells his king, and the king of Syria composes a letter to be sent to the king of Israel. And the letter, in effect, says as follows. Dear king of Israel, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Well, now that's quite a letter, and it's rather brazen. And look, that's asking quite a lot. Now, the king of Israel is not a man of faith. He doesn't know the Lord. And so upon receiving the letter, he immediately assumes the king of Assyria is looking for a quarrel, hoping it will escalate and lead to a justification for war. And so the king of Israel tears his clothes as a sign of grief and anger. And here's what he says. Am I God to kill and to make alive? Now, understand that even the pagan king of Israel understood that God can't take dead men and women and make them alive men and women. Indeed, that is what conversion is. Paul says so numerous times. In Ephesians 2, he states categorically, we were dead in sins, but God made us alive. In short, the plea that God might save us from our sins is the plea that is made for the impossible. Oh God, make us dead men alive. We come in our study of the book of Colossians to consider what has occurred when we were saved. And Paul mentions three things. First, forgiveness. Then second, removal of our record of debt. And then third, the victory over Satan and the demons. And I say this in advance of our study because the more I think about it, the more I read my Bible about the nature of my salvation, you know, the more I'm overwhelmed at what was accomplished for me and all who know Christ. Healing Naaman's leprosy, or indeed the chapter before the incident with Naaman, has Elisha in the power of God raising a widow's son from the dead. But all those things, although they are striking, are really nothing at all compared to the salvation of any sinner. So let's read our text. Colossians 2, 13 to 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That conversion is life from the dead. Well, that's explained in great detail in the first verses of Ephesians 2. Paul wants to make it very clear that God gets credit for our salvation. We added nothing. We were dead. God made us alive. Now, in Colossians 2, Paul simply affirms that before we came to know Christ, yes, we were dead, and that is true in two senses. First, we were dead in our trespasses. 
And to trespass is to step over the line, going somewhere where we are forbidden from going. And God's laws point out the limits of where we may not go. We overstep the boundaries. And by calling this dead in trespasses, Paul wants to give the impression that we've strayed onto forbidden ground. And we were dead in the sense that we were unable to change the course of these events. It has been done. You can't change that now. We're also dead in the uncircumcision of our flesh. Now, we discussed the matter of circumcision before, but here Paul uses that word again. Circumcision was the sign that a person was a part of the covenant with God. Uncircumcision meant that a person had no agreement with God. God had made no promise to forgive sins, to exercise mercy, or to show kindness. No agreement of that kind had been reached. No contract was signed. To call it the uncircumcision of your flesh means that everything in the flesh, and that includes sexual immorality and rancor towards others and greed and gossip and heartless actions and ultimately hatred against God, that this was the kind of uncircumcision we once lived in. And it's called death because, like physical death, our old nature was unresponsive to the life that God had offered. We were incapable of living or changing our ways or being forgiven. But now in verse 13, it says that we were saved. God granted life to the dead. And look carefully how this reads. It says, God made you alive. God did it. We didn't because all that we were were dead. But then Paul adds that we were made alive with Christ. And that's to say, even as Christ was raised from the dead and now lives with the power of an indestructible life, so also we, because we're in him. And that's the true story of every conversion. But Paul's not done because he wants his readers to hear of three things that occurred to them now that they've been made alive. And the first is simple. Paul simply says, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And to forgive is to act in grace towards an individual. So forgiveness and grace are always intertwined in the Bible. Grace is goodness that is given to someone. It's a mercy that wasn't earned or deserved. Grace offers forgiveness knowing full well that the trespasser or the transgressor or the wrongdoer has not done one thing to merit grace or to merit forgiveness. There was no step of first contrition of making things right. Forgiveness is the action of God towards the undeserving dead sinner. It says, I've pardoned you of all your wrongdoing and it no longer counts against you. And well, such an action is staggering. That the great God, the, the righteous God, the holy God, against whom we have sinned, for there is no greater sin than a sin against God, that he should forgive. Even though we've heard it before, we should be staggered by the enormity of this thing, constantly overwhelmed by what's been done to us who are saved. The second thing that came out of our salvation, and it's really not the second thing, but it's a further expansion of the theme of forgiveness. Paul says that we were forgiven in this fashion. Our record of debt was nailed to Christ's cross. So let's start with a picture that each of us have a record of debt. You know, in the Roman world, a record of debt, that was a legal term. It was a written note of indebtedness. So when money was borrowed or when services were rendered, a legal note was created, which indicated the exact amount of indebtedness that needs to be paid back. Now, notice in our passage, we're told that God himself keeps such a note on us. 
Indeed, says Paul, this is a note that keeps track of our indebtedness before God, and Paul adds, with its legal demands. And that's an important phrase, with its legal demands. I have one commentary on my bookshelf which says that this means that the law has been nailed to the cross, or the law has been annulled in Christ. Indeed, this commentator said, God has completely obliterated the law. But please notice, that's not what our text says. The law was not obliterated, rather, the curse of the law was obliterated. Our text says that the law keeps not only a record of what's right and wrong, but the law also keeps a record of the punishment which is due for every infraction. So, Deuteronomy 27:26 says, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. But then Hebrews chapter 2 verse 2 says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. That is, the law made it clear what each infraction deserved. So in Colossians, Paul's making a point. There is a record of debt against every human being. Every trespass is duly noted. The penalty for each trespass is added. And over a lifetime, we have to imagine the record of our debt simply grows. So what does forgiveness look like? Well, Paul tells us that in Christ, God the Father set aside our record of debt. And more, he tells us that record was nailed to the cross of Jesus. If there's ever a picture of the cross that we need to treasure, it is this one. Imagine Jesus dying for our sins, and somewhere on that cross are sheets of paper. You look closer. They look like an accountant sheet. Every trespass, every sin, every infraction of God's law, both the ones that seem slight in our eyes and those that seemed weighty, all of those are duly recorded along with each penalty also. And there is Jesus hangs dying on the cross, somewhere right beside of him, that large ledger has been nailed. It flaps in the breeze as Jesus groans under his suffering. All that record of debt is charged against the man who hangs on the cross. If ever there's a picture that Jesus suffered for us, that's it. His suffering is precise and exact. Each infraction adds to his suffering until the full weight of it is added to him. And that, says the Father, is what happened to your sins. Jesus bore them along with the just penalty, and you bear it no more. This is Back to the Bible, Bible teaching you can trust. You know, there's nothing that happens apart from the hand of God. He rules everything. Well, that's the theme of our annual scripture calendar. The 2024 In All Things Scripture Calendar reminds us every month in beautiful images, scripture, and inspirational thoughts that God is ever present. It also contains exclusive quotes from Dr. John Newfeld's new book, which will be available in the new year. It is our hope that this wall calendar resource, complete with a one-year Bible reading plan, will encourage you and help you maintain a spiritual discipline of daily Bible reading in the new year as part of our commitment to providing biblical resources without barriers. Our 2024 scripture calendar is now available at our office for your contribution of $700 each. 
As always, we have a complimentary copy for those of you who have made a financial contribution to the ministry within the last two years, in appreciation for your faithful support of this ministry. We certainly would appreciate if you could arrange to collect your complimentary calendar by Friday, December 15, so as to reduce our mailing expenses. Now, as we get back to the Bible, here once again is Bible teacher John Newfeld. There are a number of people who have denied the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus. I know those are theological words, but the words are not difficult to understand. Penal means penalty. Jesus bore our penalty on the cross. Substitution means he was substituted in our place. You know, the critics of this clear Bible teaching argue, look, that can't be true. How could the Father cause his own son to suffer? Wouldn't that be, they say, cosmic child abuse? So let's understand something. First, this doctrine is clearly taught in the Scripture. You've just read it in Colossians 2.13. And furthermore, Isaiah says it more explicitly than we could ever say. Isaiah 53, verse 10, It was the Lord's will, that is, it was Yahweh God's will, to crush him, that is, the Messiah, and cause him to suffer. God doesn't apologize for the crushing of his son. Rather, God the Father says, I'm responsible for his suffering. I willed it, and that's why it occurred. And if we reply in horror, understand this. Isaiah also says that it was God's will to make his servant an offering for sin. It was God's will to put Jesus to death for your sin and mine. And I find this amazing, for it tells me that my sins are not insignificant things. It also tells me that the Father's mercy, His forgiveness, that's not a small matter. I love Him because He has forgiven so much. Now we come to verse 14, and here's a very important verse. Remember I said three things follow our conversion. The first is that we're forgiven. The second, that the record of our debt was nailed to Christ's cross. And now the third is the defeat of Satan. Verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. See, I think it's necessary for us to stop here and understand that some people, the ones who deny the substitutionary atonement, they argue that there's a different theory of the cross, they say, and this is called Christus Victor, a new theory of the atonement. That is, Jesus didn't die for our sins on the cross, rather Jesus died to defeat Satan on the cross. Now, as to how Jesus defeated Satan, well, there's a great deal of disagreement in the Christus Victor camp. You know, some in the extreme pacifist community argue it this way. Satan, they argue, is personified in the Roman Empire along with her armies. They declared war on Jesus, and Jesus, rather than fighting them with swords and spears, responded in pacifism and let them kill him. And then he proved that military power can't prevail by rising from the dead. So in this sense, Jesus has prevailed. But in the previous verse, in Colossians 2.15, we've already read that our record of debt was nailed to Christ's cross. So Colossians is not the story of passive non-resistant love. It's the story of our sins being nailed to Christ. Now others who hold Christus Victor argue that what Christ did on the cross was that he tricked Satan. 
Satan didn't realize that Jesus was dying for our sins, so he led the way in the crucifixion to only discover that he had played into Christ's hands. Now, there are a great many people that hold that view, and if I had the time, I'd show that this view is not in keeping with what the Bible actually teaches. It seems far more reasonable to argue that in going to Jerusalem, that Jesus forced the Jewish leaders into a corner. They felt compelled to crucify him, and Satan, for his part, tried to prevent Jesus from being crucified, but he failed. That's what I think happened on the cross. But that leads us back to the question, how did Jesus' death lead to the defeat of the powers? How did God the Father put the rulers and authorities to public shame through the crucifixion of Jesus? And before I answer the question, let's step back and answer another question. How do I know for sure that the rulers and authorities actually refer to Satan and the demons rather than the rulers and authorities of the Roman Empire? Well, go back, if you will, to Colossians 1.16. There Paul told us that Christ is the one through whom all things were created, and then he mentions things visible and things invisible. And then, speaking of the invisible things, he speaks of thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. So rulers and authorities in Colossians and in Ephesians as well speak of the unseen realm of the angels and the demons. But of course, the angels weren't humiliated when Jesus died, but the demons were. They were exposed to public shame. See, the best example of that comes from back in Matthew 1, verse 19, when Joseph, who finds that Mary is pregnant, decides not to bring public shame on Mary. In other words, he doesn't want the community to look at her with whispers and condemnation and knowing glances, something that she's going to bear from that day onward. See, that kind of shame is not what Joseph wanted Mary to bear. But when Jesus died on the cross, there was a shame, the knowing glances, the condemnation, the whispers that are said about Satan. Well, how so? I think the best way to explain that is by an illustration. Now, let's see if this works. I thank my dear friend, Dr. Bruce Ware, in a conversation with me. He gave me this very effective illustration. Imagine you're found guilty in a court of law. So the record of your crimes have been read out. The evidence of your guilt is now displayed. Then in court proceedings, you're found guilty. And as a result, a second phase of the trial begins. The sentencing phase, you're sentenced to life in prison. So you arrive in prison and you find out the prison is ruled by a warden with bouts of sadistic cruelty. He imposes cruel rules on you, his prisoner. He looks for ways to punish you further, sometimes for small infractions, subjecting you to solitary confinement, to cruel work details, and even exposes you to humiliation in front of others. Everything he does is meant to torment you, increase your pain, and ultimately to destroy you. Then imagine something else happens. Let's say a new piece of DNA evidence is discovered. You get a new trial and you're free. Imagine now you're a free man and you live down the block from the man who was your jailer. And you remember the cruelty that he did to you. And one day you meet him face to face. Let's say it's in a social gathering. The jailer tries to humiliate you in public, telling others he's not taking anything from you. You walk confidently up to him and announce to him, Listen, jailer, you have no authority over me. You're a toothless lion. Roar all you want. Your power over me is permanently broken. You're disarmed. All the record of my debt has been removed. And in spite of you, I am free to go anywhere I want to and do anything I want to and flaunt it in front of you. 
That's a great illustration. However, in some ways, it's not. I mean, for one, we've not been found not guilty when we were saved. Rather, we were found guilty. But our record of debt was nailed to Christ's cross. We bear it no more. But the illustration does make sense. Up until Christ died for us, we were citizens of this world. And this world lives under the dominion of the evil one and is subject to death. We're held by the evil one's power and we're subject to his legal rights over us as the damned children of Adam. But now through Christ's death on the cross, Satan's power has been broken. The cell doors that held us fast have now swung open. And no matter how he roars at us, demanding that we get back into our cell, we know that it's just an intimidation tactic with no teeth. He has no legal rights over us. On the cross, by freeing us of our sins, the devil's power is broken. And consequently, the one who threatened our undoing has been subject to humiliation. God the Father, by sending Christ in our place, has disarmed the evil one, and Christ has triumphed in the battle for our salvation. Satan has been publicly humiliated in the salvation of Christ's own. And hence, what Christ did demonstrates victory over the demons. It's Christus victor after all. But the victory was wrought as Christ suffered and bled in our place. And let me hasten to add this. The victory has been wrought because the evil one no longer has hold on us. And I would hasten to add Christians no longer fear either Satan or the demons. We don't worry that we might be demon-possessed or controlled. We know, as James tells us, that we can resist him that we now belong to another, to Christ. We're made alive, once dead in sins. Our record of dead is nailed to Christ's cross, once dead as captives of the enemy. Our souls are now free. We are alive. What a glorious salvation. That's why Paul would say in Romans 8.38 that neither angels or rulers in the dark world of satanic dungeons can keep us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yeah, we were dead. Not now. Oh, no. We are made alive in Christ. And we are now free men and women. Satan has been humiliated and defeated. Christ has triumphed. Praise God. Amen. Thanks for your message, Dr. John. You know, if we are Bible-believing Christians... How should we view the doctrine of atonement? Yeah, it's very important to recognize that atonement is biblical. It's biblical, first of all, because we need a payment that is made for our sins. Sin demands condemnation. It demands judgment because a righteous God weighs our sins. So, therefore, we need something or someone in this case, to atone for our sins. The Old Testament, if we're being biblical, tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Let's get that in our hearts. You can't have atonement unless blood is shed. Christ's blood pays for our sins. His blood, his life was spilled out so that ours might be saved. So one was given in our place. This is how biblical people think. Uh, we therefore give all glory to Christ for our salvation and receive none for ourselves. It's biblical.
Thanks for joining us today here on Back to the Bible, brought to you by Back to the Bible Broadcast Jamaica, in a partnership with listeners who give in support of this ministry. Our office is located at shop number 22, Hagley Park Plaza, Kingston 10. Our office hours are from Mondays through to Fridays from 8.30 a.m. through to 4 p.m. We can be contacted via email at backtothebibleministry at gmail.com. Our office number is 876-926-5765 and our cell and WhatsApp number is 876-337-6295. To listen to this study again or some of our previous studies, they are available in our free mobile app along with other Bible engagement material. Just look for BTTB Jamaica in your app store. That's BTTB Jamaica. You can also listen from other podcast platforms, including Podbean, Google, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Be sure to look for Back to the Bible Jamaica. And before we go, we have in stock the 2024 edition of Our Daily Bread, available from our office here at Back to the Bible for $500 each. Debit and credit cards are accepted. We invite you to join us tomorrow as we continue our series in the book of Colossians, The True Christian, with a message titled, Let No One Disqualify You, as Bible teacher John Newfeld shares from Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through to 23. That's tomorrow, right here on Back to the Bible Jamaica, seeking to bring you closer to Jesus today than you were yesterday. Mm-hmm.